0: No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code, program.
1: General surgery.
2: I think we can all relate to how much of an issue this is in general surgery, and particularly in emergency general surgery. Although we often see it as a nuisance, it's important to remember that there are some significant sequela to SSIs, like increased cost and healing time, higher rate of fascial dehiscence and hernia formation, and that's not to mention worsened cosmesis.
3: Absolutely. And this all reminds me, of course, of a recent case that I had um, that I'm sure will be all too familiar to a lot of people out there. So I was called to see a man in his late 50s with several days of worsening abdominal pain and obstipation. Uh, He had a white count over 20,000 and was tachycardic. After resuscitation and antibiotics, the CT showed free air and a sigmoid mass. He had diffuse feculent peritonitis and underwent a subtotal colectomy and end ileostomy. Now, we all know where this is going. My post-op day five, his wound is red, beefy, tender, hot, and I was able to express a moderate amount of pus. I opened the wound, drained large, a large amount of purulent material, revealing intact fascia underneath. Now, here are the questions I think we need to ask ourselves. Could we have predicted this, and could we have done anything to prevent it?
1: Yeah, I think those are great questions, and, and certainly we have to consider both whenever a clinical problem like this presents itself. So to get a better understanding of the state of the evidence for surgical site infections and emergency general surgery, we selected two related studies to look in more detail at uh, in our podcast today.
2: So the articles we're going to be talking about today are number one, not a routine case. Why expect the routine outcome? Quantifying the infectious burden of emergency general surgery using NISQIP. Arnold et al, American Surgeon, two thousand nineteen, and number two, prophylactic negative pressure wound dressings reduces wound complications following emergency laparotomies: a systematic review and meta-analysis by Lacani et al in Surgery, two thousand twenty-two.
3: So, starting with paper one, and again, that's not a routine case. Why I expect the routine outcome? Quantifying the infectious burden of emergency general surgery using the NISQIP. Uh, So anecdotally, we all expect higher infection rates in the EGS population due to the nature of the pathologies and surgeries. Uh, They're more likely to be contaminated or dirty cases, and the patients are sicker than in the elective setting. However, we've had very little published data to support the suspicion to date.
2: So that's why we're going to talk about the paper by Arnold et al. That was published in 2019 out of North Carolina. Once we look at their study that uses the American College of Surgeons National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, or NISQIP data, we can better answer what we should expect in terms of SSI risk in the EGS population, and ultimately think about what we can do better to reduce this risk.
1: In this study, they looked at NISQIP data from 2005 to 2016 for three procedures that are done in both the elective and emergency setting for a a nice comparison. These procedures procedures included open or laparoscopic cholecystectomies, ventral hernia repairs, and partial collectums. Their primary outcome was an aggregate of surgical site infections, or SSIs, which includes wound disruption, superficial SSIs, deep SSIs, and organ space SSIs.
2: And just to give you a sense of how broad the NISQIP database is, there are over 600 hospitals that participate in this program. So it really provides a great breadth and depth in terms of data collection for this type of analysis.
3: To that point, Ashley, they identified over 800,000 patients who met the inclusion criteria. Emergency patients were significantly older, more likely to be male, had a lower BMI, had more comorbidities, were more likely to be smokers, and had more frequent alcohol use, and they were more likely to have excessive weight loss in the last six months in comparison to the elective patients. The overall rate of laparoscopic cases compared to open was also statistically lower in the emergency group. Also, the wound class is more likely to be contaminated or dirty in the EGS patients.
1: All of these findings are expected when we think about the nature and heterogeneity of emergency general surgery patients. Not surprisingly, though, they found an increased risk for any surgical site infection in the emergency group at 5.3% compared to 3.6%. When they controlled for many of the differences between groups in multivariate analysis, they still found an increased risk of SSI in the emergency group with an odds ratio of 1.15.
2: The emergency patients also had a greater rate of sepsis, septic shock, length of stay, and mortality. They also had a greater rate of other infections, including UTIs, urinary tract infections, and pneumonia. This again speaks to the different patient population represented in the emergency surgery group.
3: And the last, uh, the last important findings in this paper are comparing the procedures themselves. The more invasive the procedure, the greater the SSI rates. The cholecystectomy being the lowest in this case, and colectomy being the highest. The same applied uh, for the approach taken, with laparoscopic procedures having lower SSI rates compared to open procedures.
1: So this study has obvious benefits using NISQIP and demonstrating that we uh, what we expected anecdotally. They even tried to account for major differences between the emergency and elective setting. Although EGS is a broad category, this study focuses in fairly well on some of the most common presentations and is at least somewhat applicable to many patients that are seen by general surgeons. It certainly is somewhat limited in its scope. So we can't really say based on this evidence if these findings apply to other EGS procedures. In keeping with what one would expect, more extensive procedures, and laparotomy rather than laparoscopy are also significant risk factors.
2: I agree. I have a few minor concerns with the data, but I still think it's an important, meaningful study. I use NISQIP data routinely, so I really appreciate the methodology, but I'm also aware of some of the limitations. So, for example, cholecystectomies in this study only represent a sample of the total available from NISQIP. They also identified a large number of open cholecystectomies, but it's hard to know, does this really reflect the actual practice, or is it because of sampling that there's more open? Uh, Is it a historical bias, bias, or are there different indications for elective open cholecystectomies like malignancy? They found the same SSI differences as the other procedures studied, so it's likely still relevant data, but it's important to think about how this data is collected and reported.
3: Yeah, so I think the biggest issue is that we're kind of comparing apples to oranges in the emergency and elective settings. Uh, it's important. It's an important comparison to highlight the needs of EGS patients, so I do appreciate that uh, we have uh, this data to support it, uh, and the higher infectious complications overall speak to how sick the EGS patients are in comparison to elective patients.
1: Yeah, for sure. While the odds ratios appear slightly low at 1.15, it's important to note that 15% is actually a fairly substantial increase in the rate of SSI and EGS patients compared to our elective patients. So this is likely a clinically significant difference that we should be both aware of and work towards mitigating wherever possible. Overall, it seems that we can fairly safely state that patients presenting with EGS are at higher risk for SSIs and, of course, the associated resultant problems.
2: Yeah, and importantly, we can use that information to help with patient preoperative discussions where possible, setting expectations, and planning for the needs of postoperative recovery, such as wound care resources.
3: And that leads us nicely into the second paper, which is, again, prophylactic negative pressure wound dressings reduces wound complications following emergency laparotomies, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So patients undergoing emergency surgery are more likely to get wound complications, and these complications are more common in procedures that are more extensive and invasive. And that seems to make sense, but the question here is, what can we do about it?
2: Well, Jordan, I'm glad you asked, because our next paper really flows nicely into that, um, as you mentioned, and so we're going to address that exact question by looking at this paper.
1: Well, that sounds great, Dr. Nadler. So, uh, as we all know, there are many strategies surgeons are using to reduce wound infections. These include preoperative antibiotics, washing the wound at the end of the case, using separate closing instruments. But the evidence is actually fairly sparse for most of these interventions. One thing that started to get a lot of interest in the hospitals I work in is negative pressure wound dressings. I see them used in some of the big elective cases, but Do either of you know, how do these things actually work? So I wondered the same thing, Graham. So as you know, they
3: provide continuous negative pressure directly on the wound itself. The theory is that these devices remove any excess fluid from the subcutaneous spaces and reduce the formation of collections and wound contaminants.
2: Exactly. And some studies have suggested these devices actually affect wound healing at the cellular level by promoting the infiltration of fibroblasts and the process of angiogenesis. This encourages the development of healthy granulation tissue. Well,
1: that's very cool. Um, I really enjoyed this paper because it's the first systematic review and meta-analysis to analyze the use of negative pressure wound therapy in our favored patient population, those undergoing emergency general surgery.
3: That's right. So the authors conducted an extensive literature review for studies published between 2005 and 2022. Uh, They included any study that compared the use of negative pressure wound dressings with standard dressings on closed emergency laparotomy incisions. All studies had to report on the subsequent rate of surgical site infection.
2: Studies were excluded if this comparison was not made, the operations were elective, or the operations were not laparotomies. They reviewed over 10,000 studies but in the end only included seven in their systematic review and meta-analysis. In total, 1,199 patients were included, of whom 566 were treated with negative pressure wound therapy and 633 that received standard dressings only.
1: The primary outcome was surgical site infection, although they looked at a number of secondary outcomes, including wound breakdown. Although I will point out it's important to note that this meant either skin or fascial dehiscence. They also looked at wound collections such as hematomas and seromas, length of stay, 30-day reoperation rate, readmission, admission to ICU, and 30-day mortality.
3: Now there are two important findings uh, to address first in this study. So first, negative pressure wound therapy was associated with significantly lower incidence of surgical site infection, with an odds ratio of 0.43. Second, negative pressure wound dressings decreased wound breakdown. Again, uh, as Graham noted, a combined outcome of skin and fascial dehiscence with an odds ratio of 0.36. Of note, only three of the seven studies in the meta-analysis reported on wound breakdown.
2: So interestingly, despite decreasing wound infections and dehiscence, negative pressure wound dressings did not affect rates of wound collection, hospital length of stay, For 30-day readmission, which is a bit odd considering that, especially in my experience and anecdotally, wound issues, especially fascial dehiscence, can dramatically lengthen hospital stays.
1: I agree. I also found that a little bit odd. Um, Why don't we start by critiquing the methods in this paper? Um, You know, I I think we can commend the authors for their extensive literature review, and and I think they used a very appropriate search strategy to identify a whopping 10,000 studies Unfortunately, in the end, only seven of those studies met their inclusion criteria, but we can't really fault them for the lack of pre-existing work to address this question. Still, they were able to include nearly 12,000 patients in the meta-analysis, and and that's pretty good.
3: Yeah, and the authors chose to include studies on patients who underwent laparotomies in the emergency setting and reported on surgical site infections. Do you guys think that's a reasonable inclusion criteria?
2: I think so. Of course, in emergency general surgery, we often use minimally invasive approaches, but I think focusing on one type of operative approach makes it easier to make meaningful comparisons. It's important to remember that this isn't randomized data. In fact, only two of the seven studies included were randomized controlled trials. So the groups in the meta-analysis aren't matched for any important factor, including age, comorbidities, procedure, pathology, etc., which, as we discussed earlier, likely affects the risk of wound complications. But still, I think focusing on laparotomies is reasonable, given that wound complications affecting laparotomies tend to be more significant than those affecting minimally invasive incisions. What do you think, Jordan?
3: Yeah, for sure. I had some of those same concerns. As you mentioned, we don't really know what procedures these patients had. We also don't know what type of negative pressure wound dressing each study used, and if there are important differences between devices. But the thing that I struggled with the most was lumping together skin and fascial dehiscence Skin dehiscence, is, as everyone knows, often kind of dealt with with a couple of steri strips and opening, uh, but a fascial dehiscence is almost always a take back to the OR early in the post-operative course. So majorly different outcomes for patients, and it all got lumped together in this study.
1: Agreed. That's a bit suboptimal. Now, I think it would be fair to say that the study shows us that negative pressure wound dressings reduce wound complications and emergency laparotomies. But it doesn't really help us to decide which patients having an emergency laparotomy require a wound back. This is why we thought it would work well to present these two papers together, one highlighting the scope of the problem while the other evaluating a potential solution. Together, they may help us to guide decision making um, for our emergency general patients in terms of who might get a wound back.
2: For sure. And good reason we pick them this way. Um, but in addition to the paper we first discussed, there are other studies showing that emergency operations, specifically for colonic pathologies, confer a higher risk of surgical site infections. We'll provide references to those studies in the show notes. Um, These observations certainly make some more sense, given that emergency presentations of colon pathology often involves perforation, obstruction, uh, or possibly translocation of bacteria. Plus, emergency patients generally aren't prepped, So these big colon cases may be worth considering for negative pressure wound dressings. Um, But back to this study, Jordan, I'm still curious if negative pressure wound dressings on closed incision reduce wound complications so much, why didn't it affect length of stay or readmissions?
3: Yeah, that's a great question and something I was wondering about too. The authors do address it in their discussion to some extent. So they suggest that patients receiving emergency laparotomy are generally quite unwell and uh, and that their length of stay is likely determined by other factors. And I thought that was probably true and a reasonable conclusion. Additionally, fascial dehiscence is a serious but fairly rare event. So I suspect neither group had too many of them. Still, it would be nice if they were able to tease this out in their data.
1: Okay, great. Well, I think that's a, a really nice discussion of paper two. Um, so, you know, in the end, what is our takeaway? Does this mean that anyone walking through the door with an acute coli gets a wound back?
3: This is definitely an area of controversy, Graham, uh, but in my opinion, with the current state of the evidence, no. And this study certainly suggests that there's a significant decrease in wound infections in emergency general surgery cases using negative pressure wound therapy, But there are some big caveats here, a a glaring asterisk over uh, over the text, so to speak.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest issue here is with resource utilization and relative costs. Even though there's a difference in outcome here, making VAX available for every emergency general surgery case may not be practical, feasible, or costly, especially in a lot of settings, especially in lower middle income countries. Also, many of the prevented wound infections may be relatively minor, and it's unclear if there's a great deal of difference in overall morbidity and system level costs associated with the intervention. So although it's interesting, there's some important unanswered questions before we apply this across the board.
1: Great. So my takeaway here is that in the appropriately resourced setting, we could potentially institute routine use of negative pressure wound therapy and EGS, and it would likely result in a decreased rate of SSIs. That being said, the cost difference may be prohibitively high, especially if we're preventing relatively minor wound infections, and the amount of prevented morbidity is still up in the air. A satisfyingly, completely unsatisfying answer, so to speak. But that does bring us to the best part of every session, the game.
2: Uh, Yes, the most important part of what we're discussing in every episode.
3: Can't wait. And I think Dr. Stephanie Mason won investigate or operate last time. Thankfully, she isn't here to school Ashley and I again. So I guess that means one of us has a uh, much better shot of winning this 10.
2: All right. Yes. Looking forward to having a chance and to playing the game. Graham, what have you got for us today?
1: Well, I think you're going to enjoy this one. The rules are the same as always. I'll give you a clinical vignette and you have to let our listeners know what you would do. So today's game is called So you did a big whack. Is it time for a vac?
2: Sounds Uh, (laughs) great.
1: Perfect. (laughs) All right. Case one. So we'll start with you, Dr. Nadler. This is a 64-year-old male with acute cholecystitis. Their white blood cell count is 16,000. The gallbladder wall is one centimeter. You start out laparoscopically, but you just can't get a good view. So you convert to an upper midline. A little bit of bile gets spilled. But did you get the gallbladder out safely? Are you going to place a VAC?
2: Well, an open uh, conversion for cholecystectomy is significant and may affect their length of stay. I don't think I would put a VAC on this patient because it's not particularly dirty case.
1: Okay. What do you think, Dr. Nada?
3: Yeah, no VAC for me on this one. I agree. Uh, You know, the contamination sounds like it's not terribly likely to lead to a severe wound infection. You know, in the absence of other significant risk factors, I agree, no VAC.
1: Okay, great. Case two. So we'll start with you, Dr. Nada. This is an 85 year old female who comes in with a she's very sick and you diagnose her with toxic megacolon. You perform a subtotal colectomy and end ileostomy. And at the end of the case, she's still on a little bit of pressors. Are you in to place of vac?
3: You know, we have an elderly patient here, advanced in age, that's got a, you know, that's got a very significant source of sepsis, probably a lot of translocation. I think this would be a reasonable case to place it back.
1: All right, what about you, Dr. Nadler?
2: Yes, I agree. I tend to use them more selectively in the uh, emergency colon cases. So this is somebody I would put a back on.
1: Great. Case three, Dr. Nadler, you're back in the hot seat. 52-year-old male with an incarcerated inguinal hernia. You decide to repair it open. And when you look at the bowel, it looks kind of necrotic. So you do decide to do a resection. You do an anastomosis. You do this all through the groin. There's no spillage. Are you going to put it back?
2: No, I wouldn't in this case. I'd make sure to do a primary repair without a mesh, but I uh, would
1: not put it back. Okay, excellent. Dr. Nadler?
3: Well, that was almost a nice lead-in to another EGS discussion, the use of meshes in the contaminated groin, but uh, we won't get into that area of controversy. I, I agree. I, I don't think there's going to be much utility of a VAC in this case for the same reasons.
1: Okay, perfect. We'll stick with you, Dr. Nada, for case four. It's a 33-year-old female. She has uh, appendicitis on ultrasound. So your resident mm-hmm. says, can I book her? And you say, Sure. But when you get in, it's just phlegmanous in the right lower quadrant. There's stool. You can barely make out the anatomy. And and, and suddenly the resident remembers it's actually been seven days of pain that this poor lady's had. So, you know, you just don't feel that you can uh, just bail. You do a lower midline. You find the appendix. You complete the appy. And now what are you going to do about the wound?
3: Yeah, classic resident sabotage. You're throwing your colleagues under the bus, Graham. Um, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of contamination. It sounds like this is a pretty nasty case. You've done a laparotomy rather than your standard laparoscopy. I think this would be very
1: reasonable to put it back in. What do you think, Dr. Nadler?
2: Yeah, it looks like we're on the same page. I would also consider vac in this case.
1: All right. Next case, Dr. Nadler, you're up first. You got a 74-year-old male, um, free air and peritonitis in the emergency department. So you take them right away. You do a laparotomy and you find perforated diverticulitis. There's no gross contamination, just you know a small, uh, small defect. You ultimately do perform a Hartman. So you're going to place a vac.
2: Yeah. So there may not be a lot of contamination, but these tend to be considered. These are considered contaminated cases. So I would put a vac.
1: Okay. And Dr. Nada? I I think my first move here
3: is to self-flagellate a little bit for not having done a primary anastomosis after a minimally contaminated stable patient with perforated diverticulitis. But that aside, um, you know, it sounds like the contamination isn't too bad. Uh, I I think I would be comfortable leaving out the back in this case. So we're going to, we'll differ on that one.
1: Perfect. That is certainly the goal of the game is to ultimately get (laughs) some opinions. It's challenging. All right, next case, only a couple more. Um, we'll, we'll stick with you, Dr. Nada, 67 year old female. She presents a couple of times with adhesive small bowel obstruction. And this time you're on and you decide, let's let's take her to the operating room and see if we can help her out. Um, so you start out laparoscopically. Um, it is a bit challenging. You decide you eventually you have to open and everything goes great. You lice adhesions, but there's a couple serosal tears, which you over-sow. Um, no gross contamination at the end of the case. What do you think about her wound?
3: Yeah, I'd be comfortable not doing a VAC in this case. A couple of serosal tears, probably minimal reason for uh, for translocation. Sounds like no spillage. I think the
1: risk is low. All right, Dr. Nadler?
2: Yeah, I agree. You really shouldn't have any contamination from just serosal tears, so I would not leave an incisional VAC.
1: Fantastic. We'll do the last case and we'll, we'll stick with you, our resident uh, surgical oncology expert um so it's a 59 year old male known gastric cancer it's at the distal aspect of the greater curve but the patient's otherwise a a well patient um now they come in with free air and they've got focal peritonitis in the epigastrium you take them to the operating room and decide that this is you know it's just not something that you can patch or wedge you end up doing a distal gastrectomy um you do a d1 with b2 reconstruction um what are you going to do about their wound
2: Yeah. So this one's interesting. I think that even though this is from the stomach and probably less risk of infection related to the contents, I think that this patient is at higher risk, especially if they've had a gastric cancer, you don't know what their situation in terms of nutrition, weight loss, et cetera. So I do think that I would put a vac in this case.
1: And uh, Dr. Nada, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree. I, I think that the the risk of infection is, even though this isn't a colonic case, as mentioned, is a little bit higher than average. Plus, the patient is likely relatively immunosuppressed secondary to their uh, malignancy itself. Uh, so I think it's a very reasonable thing to do. Let's go back.
2: And I just okay. want to mention that we both work in centers where we do have the resources and ability to do these facts. So uh, I think it's easier in our situations than it would be in some uh, settings.
3: Absolutely. I think that's an important caveat to remember.
1: Well, thank you for those wonderful answers. They're really insightful. Um, I, I really, you know, every week enjoy listening to uh, to the thoughtful uh, answers to the clinical scenarios that you give, and i learned so much from you. Um, but now for the most important part, and really the only reason that I took this job in the first place, um, arbitrarily declaring a winner. So I think this week we have to give the nod to Dr. Ashley Nadler, as she was the only Uh, participant who uh, refrained from blaming the resident during grants. Dr. Nadler, you have the honors.
2: All right. Thanks everyone for listening again and dominate the day.
1: Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review.